0: from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats.
1: When I first started in herbalism, every single teacher that I knew any, every person that I knew that it was at the top of herbalism and farming was white.
0: This week on our show, we visit with Shauna Huey, also known as Medicine Miha of Wild Mint Apothecary. She talks about growing food and medicinal herbs, and how her herbal practice connects her with her ancestors and with people of color around the globe. And we talk with the owners and bakers at Two Sticks Bakery and share recipes suitable for Valentine's Day treats. That's all just ahead in the next hour here on Earth Eats. Stay with us.
2: is produced from the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to this region and recognize that Indiana University Bloomington is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land.
0: After COVID-19 ravaged hundreds of meatpacking plants across the country, several states prioritized vaccines for food processing workers. But as Harvest Public Media's Christina Stella reports, many workers could end up waiting months to get the shot. Leonela
3: Gonzalez can't wait to get the COVID-19 vaccine. She already knows what she'll do afterwards. Go to warm, sunny Texas and visit her family. I
0: want to (laughs) travel.
1: I want to go into somewhere else.
0: (laughs) Now I can go to see anybody because I don't want to go into anywhere. It's more safe for me and my family to stay in my home.
3: Gonzalez supervises the morning shift at Lincoln Premium Poultry's processing plant in Fremont, Nebraska, which provides chicken for Costco warehouses across the U.S. She saw her community really struggle with the virus and lost her own dad to the illness.
0: This virus is really bad. I want to protect myself and the people who stay around to me and for my family and everybody. I need to protect because I'm working with a lot of people.
3: About 250 of the plant's workers have gotten sick over the course of the pandemic, with two deaths. Cases in some bigger-name plants across the region have been double or triple that number. In nearby Dakota City, Nebraska, nearly 800 workers at a Tyson beef plant tested positive last spring, forcing the facility to close for cleaning. Now that vaccines are cleared for use, many companies are eager to secure doses for their employees. Jessica Coulterman, a senior manager at the plant, says Lincoln Premium Poultry has tried its best to plan ahead. Every one of our
2: team members has been surveyed. And to date, we've had over 40% of our team members say that, yes, they would be excited to receive the vaccine. So we were really excited
3: and ready to go. The company is hoping to up that number. Some processors, like the Mega Packer JBS, are even offering bonuses to workers who get the shot. Lincoln Premium Poultry isn't one of them. Coulterman says the company is partnering with local health officials to provide information about the vaccine, especially to hard-hit immigrant communities.
4: In our group specifically, we have people who are Spanish-speaking and we have people who are korean speaking And so those are two communities that we'll focus on with our educational efforts.
3: And there are some less official efforts, too. Steve Key works on the same shift as Leonela Gonzalez. He's been talking up the vaccine with peers who might be on the fence and even put on an impromptu skit one morning debunking misinformation.
0: If I can make a fool out of myself and convince one person that wasn't going to get it to take it, I I feel like I I will have
5: won.
3: At first, he was one of the uncertain people. Then he saw the virus up close when his wife tested positive after Thanksgiving. She was sick for most of December.
0: After seeing it firsthand, I don't want it. My only question is, when. You, when is it going to be here?
3: That's manager Jessica Coulterman's question, too. Right now, she's just waiting. Ultimately, what
4: will happen is I'll get a call from the health department and they'll say, we have vaccine for you. It may be five, it may be 50, but we're going to have to mobilize immediately.
3: That call will come from Tara Ewing, executive director of the Three Rivers Public Health Department.
6: I can tell you I've got people beating on my door in every single industry trying to persuade us why they need to go first, and that isn't even up to me.
3: (laughs) But many states like Nebraska are still trying to vaccinate other groups first, like people over 65, first responders, and teachers.
7: We got to to
3: really
6: get the communities to understand this is not a bad rollout. This is not that we are not organized. We don't have the vaccine. The shortage reflects
3: larger supply concerns across the United States. Ewing only has about 900 doses a week to give across three counties.
6: We have allocated 61% to the 65 and older population going to our medical systems and pharmacy. So that's 550 doses. That leaves me 350 doses a week. That's not very many.
3: So even though meat packers are prioritized in Nebraska and many other states, It will take weeks, if not longer, to start vaccinating most workers. Christina Stella, Harvest Public Media.
0: Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org.
1: So this is the main garden area. This year we just did enough veggies for ourselves and lots of medicinal flowers and herbs throughout the summer. Mm -hmm. And we'll have a hoop house over here. And then we're gonna double the space back that way because we have about an acre. That's the plan for next year now that Luna's a little older and I can actually devote some time to it, but...
0: um, We're in the garden of Shauna Huey, west of downtown in Bloomington, um, Indiana. It's late summer, still plenty hot and humid, but the garden is beginning to wind down. Shauna is showing me around her garden area behind the house.
1: Right now, we really just have like basil, tomatoes, some herbs, okra over here. There's a bunch of stuff over there like herbs and oregano and onions and squash this was all cucumbers but i took it out so i can put radishes in yeah. um and then over here i have some medicinals nettles and pansy um, and then i have echinacea over there and back by that tree i have a lot of lemon balm and dill
0: and there's a chicken coop yeah you like the oh. leavers After the garden tour, I sat down with Shauna in her shady front yard to talk about her work.
1: My name is Shauna Huey, and I am the owner of Wild Mint Apothecary.
0: Shauna is known on Instagram as Medicine Miha. She shares beautiful images of plants, both wild and cultivated, and herbal tinctures, teas, salves, and tonics, which she handcrafts for Wild Mint Apothecary. She also shares information and instruction. She works from her home, these days with her baby daughter, Luna, by her side. I asked Shauna to tell me about her journey as an herbalist. She said it started for her back in 2014.
1: I was really into essential oils and skincare. Having more melanated skin, I was always really conscious of the lotions I was using and what I was putting on my body. and I started making my own skincare, and then that led to more of the herbs and how to use them for my well-being and my healing. I think if you have more m- melanin in your skin you're more likely to be dry and maybe exhibit some skin issues that people who are white don't and The cosmetic industry and beauty industry is promoting it for fair skin and for um, predominantly white women. So I would put like certain lotions on and it would be like, this is not doing anything for my skin. I need something thicker in winter. And then I have, I have nephews who are black. I have like darker shades of brown in my family. So just seeing like skincare growing up, it just was a huge thing. Um, and realizing that some of the things that are being sold are really drying to my type of skin, and realizing that I I needed to figure out how to how to make it. Once I first started developing a relationship with herbalism, I went to like a conference and I did workshops and I really started my own personal studies with it and around the same time I also became really interested in gardening and food justice and sustainability so kind of all happened around the same time and I wasn't really able to make it a lifestyle until we bought land really my first garden I just had a little urban porch garden and I did all containers and I grew beans and okra and Things that you wouldn't think, you know, could grow in little containers, but I did. At first it was more, oh, this is interesting. It's fun to learn. It's also practical because then I have produce for myself and I don't have to go to the grocery store and I have beautiful cutting flowers to decorate. I don't have to go purchase a bouquet, but then it became... It became more about my my personal healing journey and my connection to my ancestors and spiritual practice a way to fight against a really oppressive system that discriminates a lot of against black and brown people and has stripped us of our ancestral practices our culture our roots and so along the way that's been more of my passion behind it. So yeah that's kind of the space I'm in now is it's more it's more about social justice and food justice and healing and it's awesome also to be able to give back to the community and help. When I first started in herbalism every single teacher that I knew any every person that i knew that it was at the top of herbalism and farming was white i didn't understand why i never felt a hundred percent comfortable or why the space wasn't as safe for me and because herbalism isn't just like taking herbs it's a lifestyle it's spiritual it's healing it's all this stuff so when it clicked for me that wow, I don't see any brown or black leaders. I think like the overall goal for me is to make it more accessible for people like me. Even, I'm not saying just black or brown people, but I think uh, it's, it's close to heart in my heart because I just want that community for myself.
0: She started Wild Mint Apothecary with her herbal creations using natural and foraged ingredients. I asked her about her instructional Instagram videos.
1: I really want my Instagram to be more accessible and have more info, but with having a baby, it's been really hard to... Because when I first started it, I was like, here's the recipe, like here are the ingredients, here's how to do it. It's really not that hard. I was doing a lot of foraging videos where I was like, this is what a plantain looks like, or this is what creeping charlie looks like and hey you can eat it but I haven't had like last year I had way more time for it and this year you know it's a little harder but
0: one of the videos she did make walked through the steps of making fire cider
1: I'm a folk herbalist or a community herbalist so I like to use like what's growing around here and so with fire cider. The reason why I love it is because it's stuff that's growing. It's like onions and garlic and peppers and like whatever's growing outside or oregano, parsley, put it in there with apple cider vinegar. So it's really very accessible. It's easy to make. You don't have to really go identify anything. You don't really need to know how to grow it if you can find it locally.
0: Fire cider is fiery, hot, and intense. It's taken as a tonic with the hope of boosting the immune system. Shauna notes that folk herbalism focuses on the local environment.
1: If you're living in a community, you know what's growing and and if the foods are already around you or they're native to you, then you have a connection with them.
0: And the practice of a folk herbalist is different from the practice of a clinical herbalist.
1: For me, it's more about like preventative care and wellness, overall wellness. And yeah, I mean, I, I know how to treat allergies or gastro stuff or headaches. But
0: she's not taking on the treatment of, say, diabetes or an autoimmune disease. We talked about food justice and food access and how it relates to her work.
1: I think for me, with herbalism and growing food, it goes back to just being a minority and seeing so many black and brown people being so disproportionately affected by health issues in our world. And even they're more likely to get COVID and um, die from it. And so if you look at that way that our system is set up, the people who are oppressed are the ones who are least likely to get that good quality food. So to me, one of the biggest systemic issues is food, honestly. Because if you had quality food, if you had access to medicine that wasn't super expensive and big pharma wasn't like ruling everything, then people would be healthier and not be dying and not be sick. One of the important things that I feel is maybe undervalued when it comes to farming and herbalism sometimes is the importance for it for people of color isn't just a practicality or a sustainability or food justice thing but I really do think it's healing it's really a way to like take back our power there was a lot there is a lot of trauma and pain from getting your practices ripped away from you through colonization. So I think one thing for me that's super important is for people to understand is that for me and for a lot of other POC who are doing this, it's like so much deeper. It's about connecting back to our roots and our ancestry, our our ways of life. Um, My bisabuela uh, was a native and my also my great grandpa on my mom's side was as well and i have natives on my dad's side and as well as european ancestry and um, some african ancestry as well but all of that those cultural practices that were really rooted in land stewardship and growing and healing was stripped away through colonization in south and central america And there's a lot of immigrants and black folks who have experienced that. And to get back to land stewardship and growing and connecting to plants is so incredibly powerful to healing our generational traumas, our ancestral traumas, our colonization traumas. Um, And so for me, that's like, that is like the root of all of it for me is... It's incredibly healing and it brings me joy and I really want other people who are POC to be able to experience that connection to all of our past. Our culture keeps getting stripped away and then we're boxed out of farming and boxed out of these spaces that are just predominantly white and exclusive. I'm really into ancestral movement so and that's like the theory of exercise is like separate and then there's movement that's rooted in what we would do as our ancestors which is like baby wearing while we're working in the yard um, weeding growing foods walking in community like all of that stuff is so tied in with the growing food and so when you make it the center of your world it heals so many parts of it within your, within your life. It's nourishing literally, and it's also spiritually very nourishing.
0: That was Shauna Huey, gardener and herbalist with Wild Mint Apothecary. On Instagram, she's Medicine Miha. That's Medicine M-I-J-A. And you can find her at Wild Mint Apothecary on Facebook. We have those links on our website, eartheats.org. After a short break, we visit with the owners and bakers of Two Sticks Bakery in Bloomington. Stay with us. Welcome back. You're listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Next up, a conversation from early 2020. If you're lucky enough to have a locally owned and operated bakery in your neighborhood, then you know how happy the residents were in Bryan Park and Elm Heights near downtown Bloomington when Two Sticks Bakery opened on South Washington. Two Sticks opened their doors in 2018 the ground-floor retail space of a new infill apartment building with an old-town feel. There's not a lot of parking, but that works, because there's not a lot of seating in the bakery. It's more of a grab-and-go kind of place, with coffee, espresso, and a huge spread of handcrafted baked goods.
7: And turnovers, and scones, and hand pies, and focaccia.
0: It's the kind of place you dash into on your way to work, or pop in for a midday break. They're open Tuesday through Saturday from 7.30 to 4 and Sundays from 9 to 2. Two Sticks has been buzzing non-stop since opening day. I sat down with the owners, Cassie Jensen and Amanda Armstrong, to learn more about their approach to baking and to running a small business.
7: I'm Cassie Jensen, Amanda Armstrong of Two Sticks Bakery. Things that we offer, uh, it's In my mind, it's broken down into breakfast pastries, savory pastries, and like cookies and bars and cake, like treats, like Mm -hmm. afternoon treats or breakfast treats. You can totally eat a cookie for breakfast. We don't judge. We have cinnamon rolls and Danish and turnovers and scones and hand pies and focaccia, cookies. We have vegan and gluten-free options as well, bars, cake. There's a cake every day by the slice.
4: We have a custom cake menu online. Uh, We also can offer catering options where we can do half-size bars of our regular offerings.
0: I wanted to know how they got connected as business partners.
7: We worked together at Feast, and Cassie was working full-time at Feast and doing the farmer's market. I just thought it was the coolest thing, that she was pursuing her dream outside of it. And so I was interested in what she was doing, and I knew that an investor had approached her, and I knew that I didn't want to work that job the rest of my life. I needed something more. It just kind of happened from conversation, I feel like.
4: We were both really in similar places in life and ready to spread our wings and do our own thing and had similar goals in mind. So it kind of worked out well.
7: We had an investor who we've paid off and then was getting ready to step out so that Cassie and I will be the sole owners. I asked Cassie how she came up with the name. I was home baking
0: cookies
4: all like that's my thing. I always had cookie dough in my freezer and I was always making cookies. And I later would look like, oh, all of the recipes call for two sticks of butter. I like the idea of a number and the name, and so just suddenly came to me, I was like, that's it, two sticks? I'm like an outdoorsy, adventurous person, so I wanted the look of the logo to be more of a an outdoorsy look, but it does mean two sticks of butter.
0: I asked Cassie and Amanda what's been surprising for them about starting their bakery.
4: When we look at our original numbers from our business plan, we have blown those numbers out of the water in a way that we never expected. It's just such a It's so much different than what I expected in that avenue and just the tasks of taking on employees and living up to the challenges of being an owner in my own mind. So that has been
0: a lot different than I expected. Can you say more about what the challenges are in your own mind?
4: Yeah, uh, for me personally, it's just being a leader and not being afraid to speak my mind and say what needs to be done. And it just doesn't come natural to me. I'm I'm a little bit more of the shy one of the two of us, and I thought it would be easier. But yeah, those and just uh, having trusting others to. Uh, do your product when you're not here and serve it the way you want it to be served and display it the way that you want it to be displayed. And so really just finding a place of trust I think is a big thing too and that I'm learning to do. It's like I can't do it all so I must step back and trust others.
7: Well for me the whole process was fast and easy almost. As you hear about starting a business is all these challenges, and I feel like I started working on the business plan in November of 17, and we were ready to open eight months later. This was an empty room. So all of the things that had to happen, happened really quickly and for the most part effortlessly. And so in my mind, it was like, oh my gosh, even our opening day, even how we came up with a production schedule for something that we hadn't been producing on a large, large scale, I feel like we all, as a, you know, even our front of house, adjusted to it really well. So I was very surprised at how all of that happened.
4: That just speaks to the experience that we had coming into this. I was at Feast for eight years, Amanda was there for three years, Jamie was there for six years. So we had all worked together in that environment for such a long time that I think just the level of production was way more than we expected it to be.
0: And I know you guys sold out, like, on your first day pretty early. Is that true?
7: Yeah. And a part of that was just having no idea what to expect. Even this Christmas Eve, we've only experienced one other Christmas Eve, and that was when we had only been open for about five months, so not as much knowledge of us. This last Christmas Eve, you could have pushed me over and had to scrape me off the floor. I was so blown away. By the amount of people who were here waiting when we opened the doors, and we still did not have enough for the case that day. I mean, it was incredible. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah the the very first day though, we had no idea what we yeah. were walking into. No. <laughs> so now there's definitely a system. Like it's Saturdays are <laughs> I like,
3: what was
7: that like? Saturdays are always you know busy days for us, and so now we know like well once the first mm-hmm. bake is done, start baking more things so that we're ahead of the game. Uh, So, yes, some some learning has happened, thankfully.
0: So did you have employees from the beginning? Like, did you need?
7: Yes. (laughs) We had, like, told ourselves in our business plan that it was just going to be me and Cassie, and we would bake and hop up front and do... (laughs) Uh, But yes, we did open with, um, mainly because we decided to open with an espresso machine, which was not part of our original plan. So when we had the espresso machine, we knew we had to have a barista, so yeah, we definitely needed to have more hands. And then, you know, progressed to needing to have a dishwasher and those kind of things, too.
0: I wanted to know how they balance customer demands with their own limits and needs.
4: Our space is limited, uh, which means our staff is limited, and so we have to say no.
7: And I, I feel like our hours also dictate that. There's never going to be a time that I'm working until 8 o'clock at night because we close at 4. It's a pretty uh, limited. And, and I feel like Cassie and I are both really good about saying, no, I'm tired. I can't do any more. Or our prep bakers are already, they're already maxed out. So I feel like we have a really good handle on just being like, we'll work as hard as we can work. And then we're going to go, I mean, I have two kids, so I still have to. Go pick up kids from school and do those kind of things. So thankfully, the schedule is very conducive to that. So I can get up early and be done early and still have the evening to be a normal person.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's a rare thing for a small business owner totally, is yeah. to be a regular person. Yes, yes.
4: And sharing the tasks that we've chosen to go in it together rather than taking it all on ourselves Mm -hmm. to share the tasks. And, yeah, I definitely find i am finding more often than not my body is forcing me to say no. So I'm listening to it and just
0: going with the flow. Is that ever challenging when someone's really like, yeah, but I need this cake.
7: (laughs) We hear that a lot. I mean, Cassie does all the custom cakes, so... Our front of house is usually the one who has to answer that question mm-hmm. and to stand, you know, kind of be the first line of defense. We have a set schedule of how many cakes per day and when we've hit that max, we've hit that max. And that's that protects Cassie and it also makes it easy to, to be like, you know, we just can't without feeling too personal about it.
4: <laughs> it wasn't in the beginning and I definitely set those standards after just going a little Too wild and feeling I could do it all for a minute there, and then I was like, whoa, 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 hold the phone. Uh, And I, I, we would joke that Amanda would have to answer the phone because I'm too much of a pushover, and I'd be like, oh yes, I'll do it. And then I'm like, hang up the phone. I'm like, why did I do that? So I'm like, somebody else has to answer the phone because I just can't say no. But now I, it's it is it's a lot easier. It's gotten easier.
0: In a time when there's keto and paleo and gluten free, and what made you think Oh, now's a good time for a bakery. <laughs> yeah. Oh
7: man, yeah. might be a good one. Man, I don't know. So my my background's in dietetics, um, and I do a lot of playing around with my own diet just for to see how I feel. But I truly feel I don't I don't know that we really thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. We just knew that there was demand for it. So to me, what we do is comfort food. It's, it's not super elegant and a creation of art. It's things that taste so good. They either transport people back to a memory, or I feel like there's just such a connection to food for people and wh- how we do it and our, our goal with how we produce our baked goods, I think really hits that button for them. And it's apparently slightly addictive. Mm-hmm. So,
4: <laughs> I want to eat food and desserts that just make my mouth water. I don't care about the art, like the piece of art that you don't want to touch. eh. Mm -hmm. I want something to make my mouth water. And that's what draws me to a a bakery. And and there's been bakeries around the country that I've visited and I've been inspired by. So I've kind of always taken pieces along the way. And I'm like, oh, I'd love to do that and that and that. I I don't think we even thought so much about the diets and the fads Mm -hmm. of, we've kind of snuck some of those in our Mm -hmm. daily. Uh, you know, vegan and gluten-free items and things like that, but I definitely felt it was something that was missing in Bloomington, that just mouth-watering, wholesome, organic, made-from-scratch baked goods, so. My mindset on food has always been more like...
7: Everything in moderation. Everything
4: in moderation, (laughs) yes, that's totally my, like, because I'm not gonna eat till I feel sick, but I just love to just taste it and get enough and really taste it, though, and we've been talking a lot about this lately, about just being mindful while you eat your food and rather than staring at your phone or doing all these other things but really tasting your food and uh, that's something we've been bringing Mm -hmm. up lately. So
7: So if it's an everything in moderation approach and not just Twinkies in moderation but think about the quality of what you're eating something that's really high quality is going to be more satiating than i mean i could slam four four twinkies Mm -hmm. but the honey caramel pecan bar that cassie makes i can only eat half of it and then i'm i'm good so i think there's that lesson too and just being really intentional about what you're eating and really enjoying it and don't have any guilt about it just enjoy it and then go do other things <laughs> go be a nice person
0: <laughs> I follow you on Instagram and your presence is really consistent and I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about your approach to Instagram and how you use it
7: I in a previous work Realize the power of social media. It's free, first of all, and it is marketing, and you can use it that way. And so I had taken a course and learned how to word things, how, what the picture should be like. So when we opened, we didn't have money for advertising. Advertising is crazy expensive. And we were like, okay, well, uh, we'll just do social media. And I realized that I needed to be very consistent with it. So we would post our, you know, a post each day, but also like people want to know all the time. People will call and be like what's in the case right now is there anything left like okay so let's show them what's in the case you know first thing in the morning you'll know what kind of cake we have or whatever so it was intentional and also it's really fun to just I think people like being able to connect with us a lot of people I have no idea who they are in person but we're basically best friends online Mm -hmm. and I think that that's you know part of our goal the openness of the environment here is to be able to connect with people and being on social media and and handling the social media ourselves and answering the messages ourselves and replying to the comments, like that's important to to everyone, including us. So um, yeah, social media has been an amazing tool, and people tell us all the time that they saw the story and that's why they came in or they saw the post. So it definitely is effective tool for marketing for us.
0: Connecting with the customer is a big part of what you're doing here, and I think that's really obvious in the visual aspect of the kitchen being right there. Right.
7: Yes. Yeah. That was very intentional too. And it's fun because for the most part, I can hear interactions and it's like, oh, if they need to talk to us or if there's a situation where one of us needs to step in, we're able to do that. And I think that helps us to be better owners and makes our staff feel supported as well. I don't know. And just to be able to connect with people who support us is really important. I mean, they, some people come every single day and hard to say thank you for that and what it means to us, but to be able to build a relationship with a customer is pretty remarkable.
0: Cassie was kind enough to walk us through the steps of her pecan bars.
4: The honey caramel pecan bars, and basically I start with a triple batch every time I make them, and I start by doing the shortbread crust first And I can actually do a couple bowls of shortbread crust and have them ready and prepared at a a time. That way I can bust out a batch as fast as possible. And so basically I will foil these 9 by 13 pans and then split that shortbread crust into, you know, three. And then that gets baked for 11 minutes. And so a slightly golden shortbread bottom and it comes out of the oven. And then I begin to work on the filling, which takes our biggest pot possible. Um, And I put the ingredients, which is the butter, brown sugar, and honey, to make a caramel. And once, so you get it to like a boiling, uh, and you boil for three minutes. And just like a caramel, you have to add your butter and heavy cream, so it gets it to stop cooking. And so you add your butter and cream, and then the pecans, you fold it all in. And after I've got the crust out of the oven, I split the filling into three on the on these and then back in the oven it goes and it goes for another 13 minutes and these are pretty precise they're solid and there's no straying like cakes you know it can maybe need another 30 seconds or another minute these are solid every single time
0: how many bars will you
4: get out of each pan this will be cut three by five so i'll get 15 out of it Um, And you've seen them, the portion size is pretty generous, I think, for, I mean, you can only eat about half of it, I think, and you definitely share it with somebody. So they have, by far, become one of our best sellers, and something I feel like I would look back as the thing that started it all, almost.
0: Here's Amanda describing the bars.
7: Well, I'm a sucker for shortbread. So the crust is the most perfect, delicious shortbread base, and the filling is... It's like a caramelly covered pecan, but the honey adds this layer to it that makes people say, why are these so good? And I think that's what it is. It's like pecan pie tightened up so it's more caramelly and in a bar form, and they're pretty mind blowing.
0: Amanda Armstrong and Cassie Jensen of Two Sticks Bakery Also share their vegan, gluten-free peanut butter bar recipe on our website, eartheats.org. After a short break, we'll hear a conversation with Amanda about how the bakery adjusted their business model when the pandemic hit. Stay with us. approaching the one-year anniversary of the beginning of the COVID-19 restrictions. By now, we might be used to wearing masks, keeping our distance, and keeping our restaurant dining to take out. But back in mid-March, things felt quite chaotic and uncertain. In May of 2020, I spoke with Amanda Armstrong about what it was like at the bakery that first week.
7: People were still entering the space. And so I realized that this wasn't going to last. And we either needed to decide to close or we were going to have to go online. The week earlier, I was like, I do not know how to set up an online store. I am not setting up an online store. And literally, that, the Sunday, the 22nd, I was like, we have to do this. We have to at least try.
0: That's Amanda Armstrong, co-owner of Two Sticks. They use Square for their point-of-sale service. And Square has an online store system.
7: So I spent Monday playing around with it, figuring it out. Tuesday, we opened with online ordering.
0: They quickly moved to taking orders exclusively online.
7: Which is frustrating for people who didn't know and would just come, or if they're older, or if they don't have internet access, it would be sometimes hard to explain.
0: It had to be all or nothing, both to reduce physical contact but also to keep track of their inventory in their system.
7: So we're just completely online orders only at this point. No phone call orders as well.
0: The next question, how's business?
7: So we have kind of a goal number in our mind. We know what that number is that we need in order to make a profit, not just break even, but make it worthwhile to be open. So that whole first week, I was definitely paying attention to the numbers. And we exceeded them every single day and i mean every every day since then it has been amazing like extraordinary numbers for regular times let alone carry out only quarantine times it's been in incredible incredible
0: a few days after this interview they posted on instagram a request for patience from customers apparently two sticks sells out On their online store within minutes of opening at 7 30 a.m in a way it's a good problem to have but it makes for some unhappy customers and some of them are quite vocal luckily there's plenty of grateful and supportive customers too who are just happy that two sticks is making it work in the midst of a pandemic please note that last piece about two sticks online store is from may of 2020. in september bakery switched back to in-store purchasing, takeout only, with very strict policies. Only two people are allowed in the store at a time, masks are required at all times, no sips or nibbles inside, and no cash purchases. They also have a relatively new item available, take and bake cinnamon rolls. Find their contact information at eartheats.org. If you've taken up gardening during the pandemic, you're certainly not alone. COVID gardeners popped up all over the country, with more people working from home and wanting to grow their own food. That's led to a huge spike in demand for seeds. And as Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin reports, seed companies are struggling to keep up.
6: Steve Larimore was hoping to triple the size of his garden this year, near Bend, Oregon. Once his seed catalog arrived, he started to put his order together. And then he hit a snag.
2: Out of about 60 items I ordered, a third of them were sold out already.
6: Tomatoes, kale, lettuces, sweet corn all gone. He couldn't even get a hold of his favorite zucchini, the zucchino Rampicante. That was one I was really looking forward to
4: growing again because it did very well. And it's quite unusual. It gets about <laughs> two to three feet long and curls up in all kinds of uh, interesting shapes.
6: Home gardeners across the country are facing similar problems, sourcing seeds for their spring gardens. Last year, nurseries and seed companies saw historic levels of demand. And so far, this year is no different. The closest before uh, COVID hit was during um, Y2K. Y2K was just a little blip
5: compared to this.
6: Nikos Cavania is a purchaser for Fedco Seeds based in Maine. She says since the pandemic, Fedco has hired more customer service reps, increased the number of daily worker shifts, and had to get creative to find enough seeds. Since the pandemic started, Cavania says they typically reach their daily ordering limit within 10 minutes.
5: It feels to me like the gold rush, you know, and everybody's
0: at
6: the starting line and the gun goes off and... But Cavania emphasizes, while you may not be able to get your favorite seed variety, there's no overall shortage. It's not so much a shortage of seed, but it's that um, we don't have the
5: staffing to ramp up that quickly,
6: (laughs) especially in COVID. Baker Creek Seeds, located in Missouri, is in the same situation. Right now, it's seen five to six times more demand its seed packing machines just can't keep up, and managers have had to bring in more human hands to help sort and package seeds. Kathy McFarland says her seed company is also constructing a 50,000-square-foot warehouse in order to expand their operations. We are now figuring out that that 50,000-square-foot warehouse is not big enough.
1: We're looking to expand again already before we even have that one up and running.
6: The spike in seed demand is causing a shortage of certain produce varieties, and that especially poses a problem for commercial farmers. They carefully plan their yearly crop based on specific factors. Things like climate, irrigation needs, harvest timing, and yield. Hans Bishop helps run Prairie Earth Farm in central Illinois, where he's in charge of seed acquisition. He says this year they've had to make some adjustments, including buying different kinds of onions.
0: We don't know how these like, different varieties are going to perform. If we're trying something new, um, you know, we're just going to have to wait and see if it performs the same or better or worse than what the uh, varieties that we have you know, grown to trust over the years.
6: Bishop's strategy next year is to try hard to get in ahead of the home gardeners when ordering his seeds. Oregon gardener Steve Larimore says he's planning on saving his seeds from this year's garden and using them as bartering stock with his garden club next year. I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media.
0: Harvest Public Media is a reporting collective covering food and farming in the heartland. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org next up we have a quick and easy chocolate cake recipe for valentine's day this one is from susan mintert this type of cake recipe came about during the depression when rich ingredients like eggs and butter might be hard to come by it might sound humble but it hits all the notes you're looking for in a chocolate dessert Susan is in her kitchen with her mother and her daughter.
5: This cake consists of flour, cocoa powder, sugar, salt, and soda for your dry ingredients, and then you're going to add some vanilla, some vinegar, and some salad oil, and then two cups of water. So those are the ingredients, and we're just going to put this together you mix it all up in your baking pan. So I have just a 9 by 13 baking pan here and we're going to put all the ingredients in the pan and we are going to mix it up and then bake it so it's just as easy as that. So we've combined all the dry ingredients into our baking pan and we're going to just thoroughly mix those together. I like to use a a flat wire whisk. It works really well for this. You can also use a fork. This is the only part of this cake that even takes very long. (laughs) So, now this is kind of the fun part. When you get this mixed together, make three wells in the uh, dry ingredients here. Into the first well we're going to put two teaspoons of vanilla. Into the second well, two teaspoons of vinegar. Hmm. And into the third well, we're pouring in a scant two-thirds cup of oil, and I always use canola oil. On the top of this, we're going to pour over two cups of cold water. So we're just going to kind of pour this over the top, and you want to be careful here so you don't splatter. Then we're gonna take that whisk again and just whisk it together. Alright, so we've just about got this, and you know it's not going to be perfect, like without lumps, but you do want to get all the dry ingredients well incorporated and get that oil mixed in. Our oven is preheated to 375. Okay. So the leavening agent of this cake is baking
4: soda, soda. soda right? Mm-hmm. So
5: that's reacting with vinegar, right? Probably. Yes. The baking soda with the acid mm-hmm. would create the the bubbles in yeah. there for there the leavening. There are
4: little tiny bubbles in
5: there. Already, yeah. Love. Already some bubbles. That's right. So we've got it ready. We're going into the oven, and it only takes 30 minutes to bake. We'll have dessert in no time. The other thing about this cake, which we didn't really comment on but we mixed all the ingredients in the baking pan and the baking pan was not greased or floured ahead of time nothing at all it was ungreased it works (laughs) it will come (laughs) out of the pan when it's done so we'll see how it comes out
0: the cake bakes for about 30 minutes in a 375 degree oven but don't worry about writing it all down this recipe can be found on our website eartheats.org
5: So uh, our cake has been out of the oven now for a couple hours. We have it served with strawberries with a little sugar and a dollop of creme fraiche on the side. Cake has a nice texture. It's nice and it moist. Does. And the creme fraiche gives you a little, a little of that creamy element, but it's not too sweet. Uh, yeah, it's not sweet, really. Yeah. All right, I think it's a keeper.
0: That was Susan Mintert in the kitchen with her mom and her daughter. Susan Minterd is the host of the Indiana Home Cooks podcast, and she's a home cook herself. Find more wherever you get your podcasts or at indianahomecooks.com. For another Valentine's Day treat, check out our latest recipe video on the Earth Eats YouTube channel. This one is for heart-shaped pastry cookies filled with red raspberry jam. This video also has step-by-step instructions for making my favorite flaky pie pastry. Search for Earth Eats on YouTube. We've got 10 recipe videos from my home kitchen. They're between 5 and 10 minutes long, and sometimes one of my cats makes a cameo appearance. While you're there, you can subscribe to our channel. We really appreciate it. Earth Eats on YouTube with producer Peyton Knoblach. Find us. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.
2: The Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Spencer Bowman, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knoblach, Josephine McRobbie, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed.
0: Special thanks this week to Shauna Huey, Amanda
2: Armstrong, Cassie Jensen, and Susan Minter. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey.